This is a segment from The Annex, an academic sociology-themed podcast. For more, visit us on the web at theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Charles Seguin from the University of Arizona. Charles wrote the award-winning 2016 Social Forces paper about media attention and social movements, and he's working on a book about lynchings between 1880 and 1930. Uh, Charles, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad we can uh, have a feel-good topic after that light banter. (laughs) (laughs) Charles, tell us about uh, about, uh, what you've been working on. Sure. So the lynching project, which you mentioned, is about lynching politics. Basically, how, you know, the question is how lynching became a social problem or understood as a social problem by white elites uh, in the United States over this period. The usual story, the story that historians have kind of pieced together is that up until maybe Shortly after the end of World War One, there really wasn't much talk about lynchings either in the, um, you know, elites didn't talk about it. Political elites didn't talk about it much. It was mostly ignored. It was something that happened um, primarily in the uh, Deep South that, you know, the rest of the political elites just sort of ignored. Um, and so eventually the, the argument goes that the early NAACP was able to, um, through their anti-lynching campaign, begin to sort of, I guess you'd say, problematize lynching. Um, So the usual story is that the NAACP was able to problematize lynching in this uh, anti-lynching campaign, which sort of a post-World War I thing mostly, um, through a series of cases which were, you know, much like today, the the national discourse on social problems revolved around a discrete series of events. Um, in this case, uh, particular lynching lynchings, which were uh, particularly brutal in some fashion. So um, what's known as a spectacle lynching, where the victim would often be, uh, for example, burned alive, uh, uh, souvenirs of the victim's body uh, might be taken by the crowd, um, you know, these are called spectacle lynchings, uh, also public torture lynchings, but they were very public, essentially celebrations of white supremacy. And um, the argument goes that the, the brutality of these lynchings, coupled with the added publicity from the NAACP's anti-lynching campaign, eventually worked to uh, reframe lynching as this barbaric activity. Well, how was it understood? How was it understood before? Like, what was the, how was the, how how was the public torture of someone not seen as barbaric between uh, the Civil War and the 1880s? So the original um, frame comes from the Wild West. So the original frame of lynching is that it was a reaction to, say, slow courts or the absence of a state, a real absence of a state monopoly on violence. So the you know before the civil war most lynchings that occurred did occur in places where uh frontier where there really was an absence of a state monopoly on violence and so you know of course under those conditions you you get uh you know what donald black would call self-help violence um basically and so it it became framed as what we like rough justice was 
sort of what you'd call the frame. Was it sort of like a version, a, an older version of the whole stop and frisk? Remember the stop and frisk debate where like, yeah, they're clearly violating the law, but like people saw it as an acceptable deprivation of human rights because it was a means to an end to establish order. Or like the how maybe better yet, how police violence is seen by people who are pro-cop, unquote. Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's, um, I would say, parallels there it's a it's a little different um uh to either of those two cases because of the relationship of lynching to the state lynching was um in some ways sort of an anti-state politics but generally yes it was thought of as a necessary evil it was you know it's unfortunate that the idea was that it's unfortunate that lynchings occur but if you have say you know people you know, cattle thieves on the loose or whatever, or, you know, there's a gang of outlaws that are, you know, murdering uh, civilians and so on. Uh, and, and the courts or the police apparatus is not sufficient to bring them to justice, then, um, you know, lynching became a form of community justice. Except, except I will say, I, I think the parallel that Joe is trying to make in terms of uh, stop and frisk is it's a racialized kind of justice, right? Um, you know, mm. cattle thieves are lynched in the absence of, you know, of, of, a, of a state apparatus that can bring them to justice in a timely way, right? Um, whereas, you know, the lynching of Black men and women in particular like whistling at a for a li- whistling at a white woman or actually having a consensual relationship with a white woman or you know like not I, I don't know not letting someone not letting a white person get in front of you online right i mean little right, things like right. that i mean yeah. so i so i think that it's like in the case of 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 racialized lynchings it's not really about the lack of um, uh, the lack of law enforcement it's actually more about the lack of law enforcement actually protecting the rights of certain people and that's actually kind of the same with stop and frisk it's you know s- supposedly upholding the rights of certain types of people by stomping on the civil liberties of other types of people that's that's the way I see it. I think what you're getting at is is sort of the the second phase of uh, lynching, which attempted to borrow that frame of the frontier lynching. Mm. So the frontier lynchings were generally, you know, lynchings of of whites who were in fact criminals, mm. um, and this is a pre Civil War, uh, mostly a pre Civil War phenomenon. And so the kind of uh, lynchings that you're referring to post-Civil War South then become lynchings largely about or oftentimes about the, you know, violation of racial etiquette or and certainly like one of the pillars of, you know, white supremacy post-slavery. So what they what the Southern lynching apologists attempted to do, however, was take these lynchings, which did not fit that pattern or that frame, but to sort of put that frame uh, out there as basically to borrow the old frame of the frontier justice and say um, they would make claims such as, you know, the courts here are too slow or they're too lenient or they're, you know, they're actually, they're biased against uh, white people and so forth. I mean, these weren't 
these were ridiculous claims, but they were an attempt to sort of graft the legitimate or the widely legitimated lynchings uh, in the frontier to the uh, uh, lynchings, which then were a big part of, you know, the before Jim Crow and after Reconstruction, that era of, uh, you know, where the South is, the white South is re reestablishing white supremacy. So this is like a state formation on the frontier type of story that you're you're talking about, sort of the establishment of a state power in, in the West? Well, that's the original frame of lynching, or that's the frame that is sort of the historical background to the beginning of the frame contest over lynching that occurs post-Reconstruction, post-Civil War. And so, yeah, so what I'm getting at, I guess, here is that in the beginning, in the 1880s, even northern newspapers like the New York Times would report on lynchings in the South um, using that frame. So you would have headlines such as, quote, like Negro criminal lynched, unquote. Or the New York Times used this particular one 10 different times, this headline, brutal Negro lynched. So they borrowed this criminal justice, rough justice kind of frame that was earlier developed by lynching apologists in the West um, on the frontier. And they borrowed it and applied it to these uh, lynchings that, you know, became part of the pillar of white supremacy in the South. And, And so the contest, the frame contest, basically between lynching apologists was to try to keep this rough justice frame and play up, you know, this is also where a lot of the um, the stuff that Ida B. Wells talks about the uh, basically, I guess you'd call them rape panics or or whatever the sort of the, the construction of a thread of the uh, like uh, trying to f- phrase this correctly, like the construction of black men as a as a sexual threat to white women. Right. That was part of this whole rough justice frame. And so. For anti-lynching activists, the the problem that they were that they were dealing with is how how to attack this one the idea that the lynching victim is a criminal and two how to how to import a different frame which is that of civilization so to basically uh, frame lynching as an uncivilized act um, and so what what my research uncovered was that this happened. Um, actually quite a bit earlier than historians have previously thought. And it begins this uh, transformation of the frame of rough justice to a a frame where uh, lynching is thought of as uncivilized. Uh, They use language like savage lynching and so forth. Or this is where we have now today, we think of these, uh, you know, insane mobs, basically irrational mobs. That begins in 1891 with the lynching of 11 Italian citizens in New Orleans. And Italians weren't the typical uh, victims of lynching, of course. But what this episode did was create basically an international incident where, you know, 11 Italian citizens had been lynched and the Italian state is looking for redress the U.S. national government, federal government says we can't do anything because this is a problem uh, for the state of Louisiana. And of course, uh, Louisiana was not uh, keen on uh, getting justice for the victims of this lynching. 
And so from there, it becomes a national or an international sort of social problem that um, our key allies, so uh, Great Britain, for example. Hey, Charlie, can, can, I interrupt, can I yeah. interrupt for a second? So you're saying uh, the federal government said it had no role. Now, I know that by you know the 20th century, the federal government would have a role, and it would have a role through the 14th Amendment, which was passed 30 years before this lynching of these Italians. So how did, was that because there wasn't enabling legislation or just because there wasn't yet that mindset shift? How did the federal government not see itself as having a role despite the 14th Amendment? So the, the usual thing was state uh, lynching was murder mm-hmm. and um, murder was a crime against the uh, specific state where it happened. Mm-hmm. So murder not being a federal crime, it was therefore outside the jurisdiction of the federal government. So in some mm-hmm. cases, they used this. This became an interesting uh, point in the politics. In some cases, like, for example, there was a, a lynching victim who was lynched while uh, in federal custody. And so mm-hmm. in that case, uh, the Roosevelt administration was able to turn it into a federal matter um, and prosecute the lynch mob. Yeah, yeah. This was mm-hmm. 1903. Um, but generally, yeah, the, the argument would be that murder was a you know a state crime, not a federal crime, and so the federal government had no proper role in its prosecution. And what's the big sort of take-home insights that you glean from this study of uh, of uh, frontier lynchings? Well, so I think a couple. The major argument I make is one of uh, basically about backlash. So the eventual uh, collapse of or delegitimizing of lynching was largely a function of lynch mobs victimizing groups that um, had other allies or uh, were otherwise protected. So, you know, when Italian citizens were lynched, the Italian embassy became involved. Later, there was a similar dynamic with uh, uh, Mexican nationals who had been lynched and the uh, Mexican embassy would become involved. Um, there was a case in Atlanta, Georgia in 19, uh, I believe, 16 or 17. In any case, around that time of a uh, Jewish man who was lynched in Atlanta, um, a wealthy Jewish man. And that became uh, a lynching in which drew a lot of uh, Jewish anti-lynching critics. So I think in an analogy to a lot of today's politics, you can think of Lynching is something which just inspired eventually a lot of backlash. And that backlash was based on, you know, solidarities with existing identities. So um, while lynching was a practice which victimized mostly poor black men in the uh, South, those poor black Southern men, of course, didn't have a lot of powerful allies. So it was something that sort of went under the radar and apologists were able to frame. However, as it be- began to victimize all these different groups, some of which had a lot of power, um, anti-lynching activists were able to turn that um, to their advantage. For example, uh, Ida B. Wells traveled to Great Britain shortly after this uh, lynching of 11 Italian citizens in 1891, and she used this uh lynching of Italian citizens as a way to draw attention um, 
to the lynching of black Americans in uh, Great Britain, which, of course, Great Britain being the most uh, important ally um, of the United States at the time, um, definitely a huge, a real coup for Wells because, you know, having turned the great, the public of Great Britain against lynching in America, you know, it brings in another uh, anti, a powerful anti-lynching constituency in general. So the argument really is about spillover across um, basically pre-existing identity groups and how uh, racial violence, if it remains contained, you know, it, it can be quite durable. But as this sort of violence spreads across groups, it tends to sort of sow the seeds of its own uh, delegitimization. This, uh, in a weird, this reminds me of a few things. One, I, I kind of have this vague notion, which could be wrong, which is that um, anti-slavery sentiment actually started out with um, people being, a, you know, awareness of the Ottoman slave trade, which very often involved uh, capturing or buying Southern European whites and selling them into slavery, often as galley slaves uh, in the uh, Maghreb or in the Ottoman Empire. And then, you know, gradually that spread to opposition to slavery in general, including of uh, slavery of blacks in the New World. Um, I'm not 100% sure that's right. But if, if it is, it would seem to be a very similar case in terms of, you know, uh, this, this horrible institution is applied to people who in some sense are in the in-group and have powerful allies. And then people come to have kind of a point of principle of uh, opposing it in general, including for the out-group. Uh, and then I'm also thinking, it reminds me in a weird way, again, to bring it back to kind of our current issue with it, one of the weird little uh, sidelines of the whole Me Too thing is there was a trope of men saying, as the father of a daughter, blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, and then you had a certain number of people responding to that. You shouldn't have to be the father of a daughter to realize this is wrong, uh, which fair enough. But it, it also seems to kind of like overlook that you know, in practice, that often is how people develop moral sympathy mm -hmm. is through thinking about someone, you know, uh, for whom, you know, who's a member of their close in-group and then generalizing to say there are other people who are not members of my in-group. And uh, but the same moral principle applies to them as it does to the members of the in-group, you know, you know, and, and yeah, counterposed to that is this kind of like unrealistic uh, notion of moral perfectionism that people should just spontaneously have boundless compassion. Mm. But, you know, for better or worse, that's not how it works, right? It seems that people have sympathy for their daughter or for these Italians or whomever, and then say, oh, and then also it's happening to these black guys. Like they learn to empathize by drawing analogies with people, through people who they had a prior, who they identified with before, and then they are able yeah, to- Yeah, you, you empathize with your daughter or you empathize right. with your co-ethnics or whomever, right? And then you say, oh, and the, but this also applies to these other people who I wouldn't previously empathize with, but now I do. Well, I, I mean, mean I, that, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, that's... so so Charlie, if I can ask the question, is it that they're empathizing with with the black victims of lynching, or is it that all of a sudden this makes them think that lynching is bad? I think those are two very different things. Yeah, so I believe it's a little bit of both, um, and it's also a third thing, which is. Um, whether, for example, to use the case of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So Teddy Roosevelt was um, 
became the most uh, prominent uh, critic of lynching. But how he came to it was as a result of, you know, these other people who either um, had empathy for the victims or, you know, began to think lynching was a bad thing in general. They were calling him out or they were calling the United States out on its hypocrisy when, you know, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be the sort of exemplar of human rights and therefore intervene in all these countries in a, in a colonial fashion. But so, for example, in the Philippines, you know, a lot of people both domestically and abroad were saying, you know, how can the United States pretend to be bringing civilization uh, to the Philippines when uh, these sorts of lynchings are occurring at home? And so Roosevelt became a very strong opponent of lynching, mostly as an expedient matter because um, he felt it was a black eye to the United States internationally and therefore as an obstacle to his, uh, you know, his international agenda. So I think, I think there's sort of, yeah, there's three things going on. One is people might become more empathetic or they might say, as Roosevelt did, look, you don't have to feel empathetic, but you have to realize that this thing is spreading to uh, victimize other groups. And so pretty soon it might be one of us. You know, it might be a white man who's who's lynched for rape or something, right? So, and then, you know, there's a third sort of group, which is like not opposed to lynching as such, but recognizes it's a problem for other things that they uh, have on their agenda. You saw that exact same dynamic uh, with the, you know, the bulk of, the, you know, the, the main period for the civil rights movement as we think of it uh, during the Cold War, and that the Soviet Union constantly made it in, uh, aspect of their diplomacy to call us a bunch of hypocrites for talking about human rights when we had Jim Crow. Mm. And that was a major reason why the federal government, you know, moved towards uh, supporting the civil rights movement is because it was basically Jim Crow was an embarrassment for, you know, seeking diplomatic allies against the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think there's a strong analogy to be made there. And I think oftentimes that gets pitched as something which is new, but, uh, this period, um, pre-Civil War, the U.S. Imperial period, especially with the Philippines and so forth, um, also had a very similar dynamic. And you also had activists, um, Ida B. Wells in particular, that really understood this and, uh, you know, worked to mobilize this. So I think, you know, I think of one, it's, it's, it's analytically or historically very linked. Well, it's, it's analytically, they're very similar uh, things, but also there's a historical linkage that I think Wells in particular doesn't really get a lot of credit in history. I mean, uh, there's been quite a few biographies of her and so forth. And, you know, she's sort of generally recognized as a very, you know, important person at that time. But I think because the period hasn't been recognized as important for the birth of the larger civil rights movement and some of the tactics and so forth, um, she hasn't quite gotten her, uh, she hasn't quite gotten her historical yeah, I, due. I, I would contend it's also partly because she's a woman, but you know, that's just me. Yeah. I, I think that's uh that's a big part of actually, well, both why she later got uh, marginalized mm -hmm. in the civil rights movement um, but I, I think now she's, she is getting attention, uh, a lot of, a lot of feminist, um, biographers and so forth. But, and so I, I think in that sense, we're starting to, to recover from the, yeah, the sexism of it. 
Um, but I still think we haven't quite recognized the importance of the period. So we see her as an important person, but we don't realize that she was an important person in a period which was uh, a lot more important than we might be thought before for uh, the eventual development of civil rights. For more, visit us on the web, theannexpodcast.com.